You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. This is a podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question the status quo, and get you inspired to action for your own career. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again. The podcast is part of OMD Ventures, my platform focused on building systems to optimize human performance. And part of the platform is also a weekly essay and weekly newsletter that includes daily learning from the week as well as just the thoughts that I write down. And you can get all this by subscribing to the weekly newsletter at omdventures.com slash stakeholder. There's also just a separate page on the website. You just go to omdventures.com and... If you'd also like to help out more, you can definitely do that by donating a cup of coffee to me. And so I also write the instructions of that below in the omdventures.com slash stakeholder page. And if you're also interested in maybe working with me individually, then I also have a separate uh, coaching option where we can go through your journey and introspection together. And that's in the omdventures.com slash coaching page. All right. So... If you want to look at, look at more stuff or you're just curious to learn more about what I do, just go to the website and check it out. Now, for today's guest. Today's guest is Ben Tam, the founder and CEO of Resound. Ben has been on his entrepreneurial journey for the last seven years, and he's on a mission to help each child get a PhD-level education. Ben's passion for human development and education started from his childhood in Singapore, and his original plan to make an impact was through politics, but this changed from his time while studying at the University of British Columbia, where he studied political science and philosophy. This pushed him into an entrepreneurial journey into the financial markets, where he started a quant fund, then moved into neuroscience, affordable housing, and now measuring emotions with facial data with Resound. Our conversation really touches upon a lot of Ben's wide-ranging uh, journey and I guess a lot of his adventurous feats and interesting would be an understatement for his persona this was a very fun and entertaining conversation and I really do hope my chat with Ben expands your perspective has you question the default and really inspires action in your everyday life Hey everyone, welcome back to Account It For. Today on the podcast, we have Ben Tam. Hey Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey Dan, how's it going? Good, good sir. So Ben here is the CEO and founder of a company called Resound. He is also the founder of the Pangea Eco Village Development Project. And he is a strategist for the Neurotech X community here in Vancouver. And so before we go deep into these accolades and these great titles and the various projects that you do, Ben... I wanted to kind of touch upon the early part, something we talked about in the beginning of our first conversation, like when we first got acquainted. And weirdly, we started our conversation with how you and I, we had this kind of, I guess, I, I personally said, like, I had a difficulty with figuring out my own identity sometimes with this a set kind of country because I was born in South Korea, but I lived in Hong Kong. I've lived in Vancouver, Toronto, and just there's just so many different cultures that impacted my life. And I learned from a conversation that you actually grew up in Singapore, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And so I was wondering, can you tell me a little more about you know 
your own kind of child like your own upbringing like where did you actually grow up and was it mainly only in singapore and then you moved to vancouver can you tell me a little more about that absolutely um so i was born in singapore and uh, i stayed there till i was 12 years old okay uh, we're actually a third generation canadian family so as we came back to canada it was a bit of a dichotomy because in singapore we were sort of considered as canadians and in canada we're kind of considered as singaporeans so that uh, as an early kid you know i was uh, almost forced to to uh, question these uh, identity uh, politics so to speak in regards to what does it mean to be a citizen of the world what does it mean to uh, have values that are universally accepted uh, how can a young man act in a way that is uh, fitting and uh, able to earn the respect and positions of um, influence uh, in a foreign country uh, particularly as uh, as a child coming into Canada I was I guess bullied quite a bit hmm. um, so learning how to fight <laughs> that was pretty good um, but more importantly learning that above and beyond where you are from there are principles upon which uh, all humans live and, and love like truth justice human dignity uh, so the real question is how do we live our lives and actions such that we can maximize these values irrespective of whether you're born in china singapore africa canada what universal standards are necessary for our generation to materialize for the subsequent uh, generations so as an early youth that really got me thinking uh, you know i was almost like a uh, migrated to canada got bullied a bit learned to fight sort of got a bit of uh Got an, I was a pretty bad kid. <laughs> uh, but eventually I joined Air Cadets, the Canadian Air Cadets, which was probably the best thing that happened to me. Uh, five to five squadron in West Vancouver. Uh, essentially there I learned the principles of organization, leadership, duty, serving a greater purpose, uh, rather than just rebelling without a cause, so to speak. So that's something I really encourage every single youth uh, and parent who's got a youth to do. Uh, sign up the kids for the cadets, some sort of uh, social civic duty yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> that lights a great fire in, in kids, uh, especially teenagers. And you, you mentioned then you you moved to Singapore and then you came back to Canada. Oh, you were born in Singapore, you said, yeah. right? And then you came to Canada when you're told. Like, why? What was the move coming to Canada? Why was that? Like, why why didn't your family end up staying in Singapore? Well, I guess. Um, in, in Singapore, I guess my parents sort of saw that uh, if I stayed in the education system down there, I'd probably end up as a, uh, I don't know, there's not much of a prospect there. And the, the education system in Singapore is kind of ranked up where if you don't qualify really well on your test scores by the time you're 10 years old, uh, your future is kind of mostly statistically predetermined <laughs> that you're going to end up in a certain few professions. Um, I guess I never really excelled in the traditional schooling system, so my path was uh, pretty gloom and doom <laughs> if I stayed in the country and yeah. yeah we also felt that Canada is a country we believe in a lot of civil liberties got a lot of land here to to grow and build something great uh, there's no one always watching over you to sort of beat you with a stick so to speak <laughs> yeah and this, the Singaporean education system was pretty bad I saw kids being brought up on stage and beaten with sticks and I was like oh wow that's that's not a good education. <laughs> so I was really happy that we were brought away from that. And, and uh, I was able to get a, the latter part of my education in a country where uh, we've got beautiful things like civil rights and 
for kids. <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. I actually had colleagues uh, from Singapore when I was in the investing world, and they would tell me about their time um, just going to school in Singapore and how yeah, like, there is this kind of weird. Uh, it seems something like a Big Brother kind of feeling where your fate is kind of determined pretty early on based on certain exams. And yeah. so I was like, oh, well, that's, I guess that's a very, there, that is a kind of statistic way of putting certain people together with a certain group of people. But it seems somewhat, yeah, it's maybe cruel to young kids who don't, like you don't, you're not mature. You don't know what's going on at such an early age to really have your fate so strictly be determined to one kind of path, like set to one kind of environment based on this very preliminary form of intelligence. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, education is, is meant to empower kids, not sort of beat the creativity out of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, as you, as you transitioned from one environment, the Singaporean environment, to an environment like Canada, I can only imagine that your perspective on what the quote-unquote norm was might have changed drastically. Like, for example, when I lived in South Korea and I moved to Hong Kong, okay, there was a bit of change. Like, I, I too got bullied because I was a Korean kid going into a, a completely foreign country. I didn't speak any Cantonese, and so I got bullied by Chinese kids. And then, but when I, it, it was still Asia. Like, it was still people that kind of looked like me. They just, we just knew we were different. And then I, when I came to Canada, it was very, it's a much more different perspective. It was a completely different Western culture, even though there were a lot of, there's still a lot of Asians in Vancouver, but it's, it's still different. And that changed a lot about what I thought was possible with um, what I could do as a, as a kid, just growing up. Like when I lived in Korea, I, I just assumed that I would go to the army. I was always obsessed with guns. I knew I'd, I'd go into the army. It was, you know, you hear about all the war history and everything. And then you just assume that, oh, I might actually end up fighting because we're still at war with North Korea. So I might go to battle. Like that was very normal for me. And then I came to Canada and it was no longer the case. So I'm wondering for you, did, what kind of um, shift did you see in maybe even like the kind of dreams that you could have had where maybe in Singapore you dreamt of a different kind of career um, after you, before coming to Canada? Well, that's a, it's a bit of a, uh, inverse uh, from what uh, we both experienced in a sense that when I came to Canada and after my time at the cadets um, and studying a bit of philosophy and politics around the world uh, as, a, as a young boy I was thinking wow there's a lot of genocide a lot of poverty a lot of warfare a lot of uh, tyranny so I was thinking heck uh, why not as a young man uh, begin shaping myself towards a military career uh, what better way to ensure that the weak would not be oppressed uh, than to centralize strength and embark on a military career. <laughs> um, so as a young man, that's what I really shaped all of my character, personality, uh, everything, everything <laughs> towards that one goal. Then I started studying a bit of uh, politics, philosophy, and economics at the University of British Columbia. And I started to realize, like, what is the marginal impact that a soldier on the field of battle can do? Uh, where is the real mechanisms of uh, control, influence, and uh, subsequent change in the world going to come from? Um, and, I was, and I guess after you study a bit of the histories of politics and how uh, militaries don't really have much impact on the world, uh, I think that was really what caused me to transition away from the military career and try to see how do we create scalable impact to address the core roots of what causes warfare, what causes poverty. 
then you got to take a step back and, and think about this on a theoretical level. Um, in essence, no human ever wants to fight, no human ever wants to go to war, no human ever wants to steal or act immorally if they have a roof over their head, a place to sleep, some, some nice food to feed their family. Uh, if, we, if we look at history and the trends of human behavior, it's only when poverty, a lack of economic conditions arise that people feel the necessity to go to war, to create the us and them mentality and attack and win and, and take and steal. Uh, that's the norm of human history. But what I also recognize is that we're at a point of human uh, evolution where we are able to use tools, uh, technologies to empower uh, individuals. And by focusing on empowering individuals with technologies, we can in fact change the structural dynamics of the politics and, and the economics. If we can help materialize a world where uh, future humans don't need to want for a, a roof to live over their head or, or medical aid or uh, a, how to even feed their kids. I mean, you can't expect someone to be good or morally or act in accordance with law if they can't even feed their own family. So one has to uh, address what is the core um, problem. And the core problem right now is just humans are a bit too inefficient at mastering the forces of nature. Uh, we're all born as uh, sort of monkeys in, a, in the jungle, having to fight against the, the storms, the sun, the, the, the nature and itself to survive. So the trick is how do we help humans, future humans, master uh, their environment? Uh, so that's really the root of a lot of our work today in Rizal, Pangea, uh, even NeuroTechX. Mm -hmm. And it, when as you're saying that uh, the instant thought that kind of came to my mind was, um, I don't know if you've, have you read, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with Richard Branson from Virgin. Yes. Yeah, and I think most entrepreneurs are, can't, are familiar with, with uh, Sir Richard Branson. And so I, I had a chance to read his autobiography. I think it's called Losing My Virginity. And in that book, a, a key learning I had was how Richard Branson sought out to help humankind and help mankind with you know various ways of you know creating different kind of companies. And he wanted to partner with governments or create you know a way to utilize politics and everything to help people at a, at a more global scale. But what he learned was that if you actually wanted to help people, the, the best way was to actually start companies, like start your own business and use that business to help people directly instead of going through the bureaucracy of modern day government and the political system. And it just kind of seemed, it just resonated with me as you were telling me about what you learned from your time studying uh, poli sci at UBC and studying philosophy at UBC because it seems like when you first went to university you had that mentality like you thought okay well maybe I'll do poli sci and then I can use this militaristic thinking and training and maybe the knowledge from poli sci to maybe join into like this kind of governmental kind of role to make a bigger level change yeah. but after learning more you realize mm, maybe that's not the way <laughs> absolutely and this is not to detract from the nobility and the sacrifice that these men and women on the front lines of our democracy, they're giving up their lives to, to further our Canadian values of liberty, truth, democracy. Uh, so I would hate to ever uh, suggest that these uh, frontline responders um, are ever doing anything that is uh, not as impactful as uh, what a business person or uh, more important, you know, more, more particularly a tech entrepreneur could do. 
But I do feel and, and I do believe actually that as a tech entrepreneur, you have so much more of an impact, uh, not just in how you define a company culture, but more importantly, how do you uh, set an example for other CEOs? Well, how do you build businesses that are dominant that and yet socially responsible? Uh, yeah, the, the world is screaming for a better system of governance right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not to say that businesses we, will, will come up with that, but they are great microcosms where you can experiment to see what structures work really well and, uh, and hopefully we can scale up what, what works. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when I look at your journey, you've been, uh, I would say, a full-time entrepreneur for about seven, eight years since graduating from university. And it seems like the, the, the first big venture that you had, um, I, I might put you the name is Ariat. Ariat yeah. Summit. Yeah, Ariat. <laughs> and it seems that um, the company itself is... It was like a hedge fund. It was a quantitative hedge fund that did like statistical arbitrage kind of trading. And so I'm wondering, from how do you get to do that from someone who majored in political science and philosophy? Like you didn't have a finance background. You didn't have like a computer science background, but you went to try to start a quantitative hedge fund. So what, yeah. what was this kind of journey like to do this? Well, <laughs> well um, I guess it was almost like a, the choice was almost made for me and in, in the sense that uh, through my studies, like, oh, if, if military power is not the most important thing, uh, what controls that? And one, taking a step back, uh, it's really the, the lobbyists? That, that's what I thought as a young man. <laughs> uh, whoever has the most money has the most political influence. That's what I, that's what I was mistakenly thinking as a young man. Uh, so right out of university, that's why I thought, like, oh, you know, I, gotta, I have to be really rich because that's how I can create a big, sizable impact. I can take all my wealth and like create a you know universities everywhere you know because uh, because I've got the capital. Uh, that was my that was my uh, philosophy as a young man. But uh, so essentially, I started working as a consultant uh, for a uh, for a financial fund, and um, basically uh, after about a year, I decided I was making really good valuation based picks by picking uh, discounted companies, by analyzing their cash flows, making sure they can spit out a certain amount of cash flows and buying it on a discounted dollar, like 70 cents on a dollar at the very least. <laughs> Completely Warren Buffett stuff. But um, yeah, eventually, I realized that, heck, I'm spending all this time doing all this manual analysis. Uh, why don't I automate this a bit? Um, because even though it's really fun to play detective and look at the books and accounting of each company, uh, one could probably make a lot more money if we had an automated system. So I kind of got into the uh, 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 statistical arbitrage. Uh, we basically, uh, we used machine learning to optimize trading strategies uh, that would uh, mimic a casino or an insurance company. So whenever we quantified that the market was feeling fearful, then we would optimize our pricing of our derivative to mimic uh, the mathematics of an insurance company. Whenever the uh, market we quantified would be feeling greedy, uh, then we would structure and sell uh, casino-like uh, instruments. Uh, so by uh, structurally defining the odds, um, we're able to systematically make an arbitrage, uh, the statistical arbitrage. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you operated this uh, company for about three years, and so I'm I'm guessing that with the decision of stopping to operate it, that the arbitrage wasn't able to be like wasn't sustainable. Well, actually, the funny thing about this was we actually outperformed all of the industry standards over a multi-year period. Hmm. But the problem is I started hiring this really brilliant philosophical machine learning scientist who kept saying to me every day I go in and I'm like, Ben, 
you know, you're kind of wasting your talents in here, you know, <laughs> like, you know, technology, you know, transhumanism, using technology to structurally redefine the world for uh, hundreds of thousands of years rather than just uh, for a few hundred years. Uh, they, it, I was really bit by the bug of how do we use technology uh, to uh, to create that underlying change that would, that would redefine economics. Um, so I basically retransitioned all of our capital to create an incubator where uh, I set up a bunch of uh, tables, desks, computers, robotics equipment, 3D printers. <laughs> and uh, we let uh, local entrepreneurs in Vancouver come in there and just sort of sit for free. Whoever's got a cool idea, uh, build on it, work on it. Um, so eventually through that, um, I guess I guess the thing about being an entrepreneur is when something, uh, when you see something that is greater and is worth your uh, life effort a bit more, <laughs> you kind of, kind of, what they say, pivot. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so we pivoted into building these neural headphones where you think Nick song. And, and then we've, uh, the, the, the idea was that you think Nick song and then these headsets would use our EEGs and scan the voltage electric uh, electricity in your brain. And then we decode this uh, using Fourier transfer neural networks to essentially uh, try to change Nixon. Unfortunately, the technology just isn't ready. It was a bit too uh, noisy. The type of data that we get from the human brain using uh, electrodes, uh, what we call EEGs. So then being extremely frustrated by not being able to create neural or thought commanding headphones because I was thinking, oh, if people can control electronics using their head, this unlocks a whole world of possibilities. Everyone who's paralyzed can start uh, interacting with the world as if they were not paralyzed. Uh, what kind of possibilities can be unlocked if we were able to crack the problem of synthetic telekinesis? Um, so then the problem was the signal-noise ratio. EEGs are too, too bad. It's just not, not enough data in the noise. So we had to look, how do we create next-generation brain-scanning devices? Um, so I... I guess I pivoted again and, and uh, we created a grassroots project called the Open FNIR to, uh, to basically create um, these previously cost prohibitive devices and, uh, and shine a light into the human brain and, and basically get a much cleaner data noise ratio. Wow, um, and, and so you created, I, I'm guessing like all these pivots are, they're happening off the back of the original fund that this capital that you raised for the hedge fund, is that? Is that an accurate assumption? Uh, yes. Okay. And so when you first started the hedge fund, like how, how big was it? Like how much money did you end up raising to run um, this kind of co company? Because I, I ask because I have, fr I have friends who are still quants and they tell me about how they want to run their own quantitative fund, but that to run a very statistically oriented fund, you need a certain amount of capital because of the nature of how quickly into trades to go through and you're not really making that much with each trade so you need the volume of capital to make it worthwhile so i'm wondering like, how, how big was your fund when you first started it absolutely you know i would recommend that anyone who ever wants to start a fund to essentially begin by making sure they have a model that can systematically uh, prove that it can generate alpha uh, apart and outside of their own backtesting system if they can sort of uh, verifiably show that their performance strategies can uh, operate outside of their a little sandbox, uh, then they've got a thesis that they can sell and promote. I find, a lot of, I find what a lot of uh, rookie hedge fund managers do is to essentially uh, raise the capital, uh, try to build the product, and then uh, they just burn away all of the capital in, uh, 
in uh, expenses of running the hedge fund itself. So I think it's really important to note that uh, when I raised a few first six figures to uh, start a fund, we already had a alpha model ready to go. Um, so the operations of running a hedge fund, mostly it involves like paying the bills of the people who are operating the hedge fund. Um, before you're, you've got a profitable product, you're basically burning and losing money. So that's why I recommend to anyone before they even raise capital uh, to have a solid model that they know works. Uh, so once we had a model, we went out and raised uh, low six figures to deploy and operate it. Mm. And how 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 much was the AUM by the time you decided that you wanted to kind of pivot out from this kind of world? That's a very good question, and I'll tell you about that discreetly. Okay, yes. yeah, that's right. It was basically about two x the industry standard shop ratio in terms of risk reward. Okay, uh, over the months, about three year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think you you touch upon a point where it's a it's a common. Um, we also share, I think, a mutual respect for the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger. And uh, Mr. Munger is very famous for also continuously criticizing smart people from uh, smart people who choose to go into the quantitative finance industry because he constantly says we're putting a lot of good brain power to bad use and they could be used to you know, help society in like different ways. Like these smart people can go help other industries and make more like, you know, I think potentially egalitarian or even just more beneficial scientific discoveries um, absolutely yeah and so it seems like you you kind of you know you you kind of went through that kind of process on your own but going from that finance world how did you come kind of full circle into this neuroscience neurotech kind of world where you, know, you started this headphone company you started the neurotech x community why why the neuroscience like, how did that transition happen from finance um, oh, oh, to clarify, I did not start the Neurotech as company. I was, I was just helping to found it. Sorry, as you're, one of the, you're uh, a strategist. Early members. Right, right. Yes. Um, so, essentially, I started looking like uh, we have to think about what technologies are going to impact the world uh, in a very significant way. Uh, as a young startup, you don't want to enter a field where there's already a ton of players. But what you really want to do is you I got to identify which technologies are going to be the next dominant uh, paradigms and then uh, start the work from there. And I saw brain-computer interfaces when I saw um, Tan Lee Emotive uh, had a TED talk where she, uh, where her company was able to control uh, objects uh, using their EEG headset, uh, basically using thought commands. Um, that changed my world. Uh, that unlocked the whole, uh, like a whole realm of imagination. Um, so uh, throughout all the years I was operating the hedge fund, in the back of my mind I was thinking, oh boy, if I wasn't doing this, I was sure would love to make uh, synthetic telekinesis a real thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was just, I was bit by the technology. I was, I was really, really uh, enamored by the possibilities. Wow, and, and and when I when I think of it, like I'm not very familiar with EEGs, and I'm not very familiar with tele, um, like telekinetics and like all the neuroscience realm, and so for me it just seems so technical. It just seems so advanced that someone without this kind of uh, intense training, like if I don't have a PhD in neuroscience, I just feel like I would be underqualified for building this kind of stuff. But how did you, you know, maybe you didn't even have that kind of. Uh, obstacle blocking your men- mental state but I'm just wondering how did you go into that field how did you gain the kind of competence to like, merge these kinds of knowledges and to build these kinds of technical ventures uh, well I guess if it was not for my love of physics uh, I would probably have been pretty lost because um, um, 
having just been in love with physics ever since I was a little boy, you learn to think about things on a first principle basis. So it just made sense that the neurons would fire and sort of release an amount of electricity. And then you could use the physics to take it a bit further. You can sort of think about, oh, how do we uh, tie in the latest uh, theories in uh, theoretical physics and branches into con contemporary neuroscience, like uh, quantum-based information processing. Um, but basically, having uh, the first principles approach uh, give a person a confidence to learn anything. Uh, so this is why I think education uh, should really focus on helping kids get that sense of self-mastery uh, to question and question and question and question and then figure it out for themselves. <laughs> uh, rather than say, oh, you know, work 25 years at a school and then pay off your student loans and, and then boom, that, that's how you learned it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the real human way to do it. I think that's, uh, but that's a good question, yeah. Yeah, I think in, you, you hit upon an, a very good point there with the idea of understanding the first principles of everything. And it's, I think it's a technique that, you know, you learn in physics. And unfortunately for me, like I loved physics in high school and that was like the thing that I did. But for some reason, I just have no memory of first principles. And I actually came upon first principles again after um, learning more about Elon Musk and his approach to problem solving and I, I got reacquainted and so I'm very thankful of that but yeah the idea of looking at the foundation and I think understanding the building blocks of everything can actually help with I think learning anything new where the focus is on the microeconomics not the macro like Nassim Taleb calls it macro bullshit because when you have something at such a high <laughs> level people start making up everything about it but at the most <laughs> fundamental level the models are there yeah yeah yeah, models on models on models on models on models <laughs> when the first model doesn't even work. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly, right? Like when if the inputs you put in are garbage, the output's going to be garbage too. Yeah. And and so then for you, as you kind of gone on this journey, you've gone through these unique pivots in the newer world. And then you came upon, I guess now what you have now, which is Resound and the Pangea project. And so can you tell us a little more about those two uh, big companies that you're helping build. Absolutely. Um, I could rant on it for ages. So <laughs> why don't I begin with Rizan? Because Pangea and uh, Rizan are almost twin uh, twins in that sense, uh, even though they're doing very separate things. So in a nutshell, Rizan is our, our way to give every future child a PhD. Now I'm going to get a bit technical, uh, so apologies for the non not so technical audience. I'll try to make this as layman as possible. Uh, essentially, we're trying to create video games that react to children's moods in real time. So if you're a kid, you think you're playing Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, or a really highly engaging game. These games are going to be adapted to your unique learning style, your moods as they change in real time. And they're going to teach you academic skills like mathematics, physics, calculus. So our objective is to give every future child a PhD by almost tricking them into learning. <laughs> if kids think that learning is so fun and they're trapped in a flow state where they don't want to do anything but learn and play these games, uh, that is how we can protect their sense of uh, privacy, their ownership of themselves, their, uh, and really increase their self-mastery rather than uh, like the education that I had, have a, some jackass teacher beat you with a stick <laughs> uh, and your classmates. You know, we want to empower kids rather than force the education on and make learning fun. Uh, so after, after all is said and done, they've got every skill they need to, to succeed and thrive. So, so taking a step back is, in order to automate systems that are able to personalize teaching engines, teaching lessons, lessons, uh, 
we need to be able to map the sum of human knowledge and break the sums in knowledge maps. And it's basically, it's, it's a very highly data science problem. And the problem is right now, there's, there's no data to work with. <laughs> so this is uh, the main challenge of our companies today. Uh, how do we build sustainable dominant business models that let us lay down scalable pipelines to collect data? Um, how do we build databases of real-time human emotions reacting to uh, diverse sets of online media? And then once we've got this uh, subsequent database, then it becomes theoretically possible to use machine learning as unsupervised analysis to mine out the meta variables that govern human learning itself. For example, how does stress affect the child's learning? How does uh, anxiety, how does happiness, how does uh, the music that is played in the lesson, how does that affect the speed of learning? We don't know. Uh, so rather than uh, sort of take what the past history of pedagogy has done is to uh, sort of bullshit and create theories and then test it out without much data, uh, we're just basically taking a very solid, uh, sort of taking a step back and saying, hey, let's collect the data first, and then we'll see how do we optimize teaching systems from the data. So Resound uh, is, is our uh, one of our companies to acquire data uh, on a massive scale. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll talk, should I talk a bit about Resound and how it works? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, please. I've talked about why it exists, but I haven't talked about what it is. Yeah, no, yeah, please, yeah. Uh, uh, so essentially right now, uh, Resound is our fully vertically integrated self-service platform uh, for B2C customers, whether they're in the film industry, digital advertising, music production, online teaching, anyone that's got online courses, online videos, uh, time series music, anything that's basically a time, any, any, any digital media content. Uh, they can upload it on our website. Um, and for about one one hundredth the cost to get anywhere else, we can run uh, focus groups that track participants' uh, emotions in real time. So we have a few hundred biometric freelancers who get paid to watch videos and interact with your digital media uh, while we track their facial expressions, their eye tracking, we analyze the emotions in their voice, uh, and, and a whole lot more. Um, so by basically creating a platform economy of freelancers, and by using software to automate the whole focus group industry, uh, for the first time, we're able to bring access uh, to real-time emotions uh, to the mass market. Because previously, it's only like big, big, uh, big budget firms like Disney, Netflix, they can afford like the 100, 200, half a million dollar uh, focus group a piece. <laughs> but we do them for like a few hundred bucks, <laughs> uh, just because uh, we believe in scaling it down and democratizing the technology. Now this brings me to an interesting point because of freelancers. Um, right now we're living in a time where data privacy is such a, a contentious topic and we're actually mining the most sensitive data that we can, people's facial emotions, uh, and this is extremely personal. Um, our company's philosophy on this is, is really simple. Privacy should not be uh, something that is acquired in the terms of service. If you ever want to interact with your uh, customers and use their data, you have to be transparent outright in the marketing, <laughs> not not hiding any uh, any malicious ways or, or sideways that you're going to use their data in the terms of service, uh, like potentially what Facebook might be doing. It's, it's got to be clear to people that as they give up their data, uh, they know what they're getting into. But more importantly, I like to akin this to having uh, the right to your human body. It doesn't matter 
if you have the right to your own body, if they are on, if you don't have a right to access a marketplace to sell your goods and services. So theoretically, we believe that there's no reason, there's no, there's, like it doesn't matter if people own their private data, if there's no marketplace to sell their data. Uh, so on the flip side, resounds biometric freelancers get to, uh, by mutual consent, uh, sell us their biometric data by consuming digital media uh, at at prices that they say they, that, that is actively agreed upon, fully transparent. So I think that's really important to highlight that there's uh, there's many ways that companies can abuse this technology. Like uh, there's a company called Brainco, and they are actually forcing kids in China to wear these EEG headsets, and they're just stealing all of the kids' uh, biometric data. And these kids have no say whether they want to opt in or opt out. Um, so. You know, it's a new technology. There's always uh, got to be rigorous ethical standards that need to be thought of uh, beforehand. <laughs> Otherwise, you just end up doing very evil things. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah. And and so then we have this company that looks at biometrics. And so you, how, how have you been able to determine that a certain expression is a sign of fear, a sign of anxiety, a sign of stress? It, are you teaming up with... I don't know, like a team of neuroscientists or something where they just determine, okay, if you've seen this kind of pat- pattern in facial recognition, that this should lead to this kind of emotion. Yeah, you know, it's important to note that we're actually inventing nothing new here. Uh, many of these techniques to recognize emotions from images uh, using machine learning classification, it's uh, mostly been uh, considered universally accepted uh, over the last 20 years uh, just because there's been so much academic and theoretical research. So what we do is basically we take the raw images and use our proprietary machine methods to uh, break it down into its uh, core features and then we um, can basically classify the respective emotion. Uh, And then we validate this using other people's uh, sort of uh, emotion recognition algorithms and almost by getting a very diverse uh, perspective uh, on what emotion a person is feeling um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's many ways to uh, scan, a, scan an emotion. It almost begs the question of what an emotion is. Uh, so yeah, to answer your question, we build our own uh, proprietary algorithms. And then we also verify these against uh, some of the bigger uh, companies who've got a lot more uh, capital, like uh, Microsoft or Amazon, who have uh, open APIs that let you, say, upload an image, and then they would give you the emotion metrics back. Oh yeah, and and so then now you have this so you have this company that scans faces and so then the twin as you call it the Pangea uh, Eco Village Development Company, how how is that in relation to uh, Resound? Absolutely, so I believe that in order to recruit the very best people in the world, you need to really uh, offer a, a much higher caliber of uh, work culture, uh, work dynamic, and, uh, and necessarily philosophy. So why the, whole, the reason why Pangea exists, and, and essentially, it started off with the idea that, hey, if we had built a tech campus, a fully self-sustainable tech campus, rather than uh, using all of our future uh, revenues to rent a fancy office downtown, uh, and amortize that over multiple years, uh, it's actually going to be a lot cheaper and we can 
in fact turn this into a profitable business by buying raw land in bulk, uh, constructing the eco-village infrastructure, setting up a tech campus there, but more importantly, uh, building a real estate business model around the development of a tech campus where we sell subdivided lots to local citizens to solve the affordable housing crisis. Because right now, we're experiencing an intergenerational wave of poverty. Uh, the last generations kind of uh, use all these monetary policies to ruin our economy. They kind of borrowed a bit too much debt, <laughs> printed a bit too much money, and now we're left with stagnating wages and, uh, and, and inflation. <laughs> um, so our generation, it is, we're pretty screwed. There's a huge lack of affordable housing. And, uh, and back to our earlier conversation, without any housing, that is when our next generation, if we don't solve this housing crisis today, the next generation is going to break out into civil warfare because there's just not enough jobs, not enough food to go around. Uh, the, the system just cannot function if there is no way to provide for, uh, for the masses. And, and so housing is um, it's really important. That's, uh, that's one thing that drives the Pangea properties. Uh, so essentially, we're looking at uh, the Gulf Islands in uh, the Vancouver Island, uh, as well as the lower mainland around BC. Uh, so we're targeting uh, 400 home developments, and the lots are for about 800 bucks to a, about a grant. Uh, any millennial with a five-year lease-to-own basis can own about half an acre, and about 3,000 bucks they get a half acre with a fully self-sustainable tiny home. And the beautiful thing about this is um, by doing this uh, in conjunction with uh, the setup of our tech campus, uh, we're not only able to save on the cost of setting up a tech campus, but generate uh, exorbitant profits from this uh, secondary business that builds our tech campus, gives our engineers uh, freehold land ownership uh, near our, uh, within this uh, tech campus. Uh, so what we envision is basically a really, really uh, cool luxury resort style place where our engineers can just go and and uh, try to create an utopian like society where we can experiment with uh, different forms of alternative living and uh, just try to see what it means to live uh, as a, a thriving great human community and and uh, this this development project right now is it has it gone into development or is it like what stage is it at right now yeah essentially it's gonna proceed in a few stages in that uh, in 2021 we're going to be releasing our pre-sales uh, and in about 2023 we're going to be actually having people move in so right now we've acquired about half an acre in Kamloops to build our show home uh, or show homes these are just really um to give people a taste of what they will be getting and what they'll be buying so to speak um generally about under a thousand square foot uh, fully self-sustainable net zero homes that produce all of their own electricity recycle all of their own waste uh, and also grow their own food um, so right now we're uh, uh, I guess we've got we've got some uh, uh, we've got the architectural plans for the show homes designed we've got the land now we're gonna I guess get a crew to build it and uh, gonna start doing some promotional material uh-huh. And it, it, I feel like the constant theme is you're tackling so many different um, industries. And so I think it comes back to the idea of understanding first principles. And so like this is completely different. It's a real estate development project that you are undertaking. And I'm just wondering, how, how did you go about determining these steps of even getting the idea that this could work, even having 
the remote understanding that outside of you that other people would understand and they'd get it and that it actually has a high probability of like working well i think money is a beautiful thing like money is a very fine mistress if you are always chasing money if you don't know how to woo her seduce her she will never want to be with you um, but knowing the business model knowing that if we structure a deal and de-risk every single part if we are able to add value to every single stakeholder by innovating deal structures that are just make it a win-win-win-win-win situation or a business model um, then there's no reason why a project will not work once the uh, deal is in place uh, this is uh, coming from a, a I guess a um, financial family office uh, that does uh, pretty heavy deals uh, around the world. We, it was kind of taught into me that uh, big projects are possible uh, as long as you work out the strategic business model, make sure that all the steps uh, to the grand ambition, uh, the, whatever vision or ambition you have, all the steps are all lined up in place, everything's been thought out, the risk analysis, the game theoretic evolutionary equilibriums. Are thought out. Um, yeah, that's that's really I think the best way to approach it. But more importantly, uh, what caused me to to try to decentralize and, and create an affordable housing solution is there's no reason to solve the education problem <laughs> if uh, if the lack of housing has caused all to, to devolve into warfare. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, so that's the, that's a big motivation for the Pangea project. Gotcha. And- would you would you be able to share the kind of uh, like an example of the kind of women like deal structure that uh, you've created to de-risk yourself? Uh, absolutely. So how it works for uh, in terms of the financing of the project is essentially by leveraging a small seed investment in mortgage brokers, and essentially securing a limited number of pre-sales. We can start off with say a 10, 20 home development. But the great thing about this is by pre-selling each lot uh, at a very great value of say $800 for the half acre or $3,000 for a half acre with a tiny home and ensuring that whoever buys these pre-sales are mortgage insured, um, then essentially what we have is a de-risk package with a guaranteed set of returns that we can uh, go back to the bank and with a hard money lenders (laughs) in the worst case scenario (laughs) and essentially raise the rest of the construction development project because the revenues have already been covered for the construction costs. So essentially by covering the whole cost of starting up the project with an initial launch of pre-sales of 10 to 20 lots and guaranteeing this with mortgage insurance and then packaging this uh, after we've secured the pre-sales to leverage up the 400 home development. Um, because one doesn't really need much to buy raw land. Uh, in terms of real estate assets, raw land is considered a scrap of the barrel. Uh, Everyone wants to spend their investment monies on all the Mac mansions. But if we look at where the real value can be gained if we buy raw land cheap on bulk and develop it uh, using what we call an artisan villager uh, internship program where uh, laborers can come in and for two years of labor uh, on like a four hour, I mean, a 40 a week work week, they can build the community that they're going to live in. And then as their compensation, uh, there are ways to uh, bonus land uh, on top of salaries to basically check down the cost of construction by 
helping local citizens build the communities that they will, will be living in. So rather than uh, work, say, for 14, 15 bucks an hour building some uh, McMansion, they can uh, work for their own property. Uh, and after maybe a year or two, or uh, whatever uh, range that we have set with these uh, that particular worker, they will get their own acreage <laughs> uh, within the vicinity of the community that they're building. Uh, so this way we're able to jack down the cost of uh, constructing the infrastructure. Uh, yeah, the, the idea really revolves around centralizing everything that's needed to uh, create a micro city, the roads, the, uh, the sewer, the uh, energy production, and using technology to uh, make this really cheap, like solar power, uh, recycling, uh, composting. It's, uh... Yeah, I think I I uh, when I look when I you know when we also chatted, but also ended up doing a little more research into your own background. And I learned about how you 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 personally have worked as a day laborer in like construction sites, and you also I think you've done everything from being a cook as well as doing like mineral exploration as well. Oh, I love that work. <laughs> they would helicopter us off into the mountains, and I'd be responsible for these like men. Uh, uh, and these primary men who, who would be hiking around the, the middle of the wilderness and I have to be like, yo, don't give up, guys. Because if you give up, you're down, gone, die. Because, <laughs> you know, we, you have to be helicoptered in there and we have to like, ride ATVs across like waterfalls and stuff. And, uh, and we spend like weeks and months on there just, just with, like, with like a shotgun and like, like all the equipment to like, take all this like, mineral samples. And then they helicopter us back. Yeah, that was that was fun work as a kid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and it when when uh, our mutual friend Sagar Mali, who came on as a previous guest for the podcast, introduced us to each other. When Sagar, I asked Sagar, okay, are there introduce me to some cool entrepreneurs in Vancouver? And then the way Sagar described you was, oh yeah, there's this guy who uh, he's gonna buying like an island and building a village, <laughs> like a whole city. And I think he was referring to Pangea. And then he was telling me about how, you know, you, it's it seems like you know you you spend time like potentially like, quote unquote like, living off the grid. And you you know when I met you, I'm learning about how you you're a very stoic person. You encompass all this philosophy. You've had these. I would say pretty cool and unique pivots in this entrepreneurial journey. But when you meet someone and you introduce yourself to them, what do you say? Like, what do you tell them you do? Because oh. you have so many things. Oh, I, I, I basically tell them what's closest to my heart. I say, hey, I'm Ben. I'm trying to give every child a future PhD. <laughs> like, like, every future child a PhD because because uh, I think that's the most important work that I could give up my life for. Uh, that's worth dying for. <laughs> it's like, if every future child has a PhD, like, oh boy. How do we create the technologies to make that happen? So every every time I wake up, that's all I think about. Every time I go to sleep, that's what I dream about. And then I wake up, I work on my dreams. <laughs> how do you, how do we build this uh, uh, company? So uh, Pangea is uh, is uh, in very much uh, a sister project of Rizal and other conglomerate companies. And uh, Neurotech Acts is uh, is the one tenth of my time that I volunteer for charity to help uh, rather than give the money, I give my time. To help grow this community of neuroscientists, uh, but primarily, I'm th- that's all I'm focused on. Really, how do we give every child? How do we solve this education problem? It's horrible. People spend twenty five years of their life studying, twenty five years working to pay off their student loans, and then the next twenty five years uh, working to pay their kids 
college tuition and then they die. It's like asking a chicken to lay an egg, nurturing the egg, and then when the egg hatches, you smash that baby with a hammer. That's that's what our education system is right now. It's it's not working. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to rant too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, honestly, that could actually be a separate podcast on its own. Like the, I think the approach to education is something I think a lot of great entrepreneurs are constantly trying to tackle. And there's so many ways of tackling education. And but regardless, I think even even saying that kind of goal, this mission, this dream, whatever you want to call it, whatever someone else might call it, of helping you know young children have a PhD by the time they reach a certain like young age. It's an audacious goal. It's a very scary thing, and but throughout this journey, like I'm, I'm just wondering how have you been able to like generate cash flow from Resound to like um, you know see that it's working, that you're seeing some inklings of I think I think this could work. Like, have you reached that zero to one stage of Absolutely. it's working? People like you have customers and you and have companies above and beyond that. We've seen demand in many different industries such as digital advertisement, uh, film. Uh, music production uh, and and primarily education uh, when when you take a step back and see that people evolve to communicate face to face we can see each other's emotions on a real time basis and to adjust our messaging to hyper engage uh, whoever we're speaking to this is how we evolved so when we are able to offer all of these companies a way to bridge that evolutionary connection and and get back to the real-time emotions of their customers, their audience, their students. Uh, that's that's really important, really valuable. Uh, so we've got dozens of uh, even resellers who would, uh, and if anyone wants to uh, resell, hit me up an email at banneresound.com. <laughs> but essentially, we are uh, we're able to spread this technology out through multiple industries through our, our reselling program and our vendorship program. Okay, and. It seems like when you've been on this entrepreneurial journey for seven years and you've had multiple ventures up till this point and it's my assumption is that when you know which you end up pivoting because you get stuck in the zero to one phase like you you're at zero and as you try to get the validation to to find a point of can we scale what we have now if you can't get there then you realize oh well you know we have new facts we'll pivot we'll go somewhere else we pivot we pivot and then it seemed like you finally kind of hit that point with what Resound is, where you know you've been building this for about three years, and it seems like there is traction. As you say, what has that journey been like, where you're just constantly pivoting into different, I guess, ventures until you kind of hit this point of, okay, is this actually going to work? Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about stoicism, but before I do, um, from a scientific method perspective, we're never finished and we're always pivoting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so taking a step back into what kind of a character I believe is necessary uh, to withstand the pivot after pivot after pivot until one finds what resembles resembles truth uh, or um, a good truth. Uh, So essentially I believe that every man or woman uh, and hopefully child needs to ask themselves what is it that you're willing to die for? (laughs) What is worth more than your own life value? What is uh, like if you are worth x what is worth 10x or 100x on a philosophical theoretical basis? Uh, for me, this is really um, like principles such as truth, ensuring a just and free world, uh, helping to protect the uh, meaning of human dignity, uh, whether or not I am alive, but just that humanity can reach its fullest, most beautiful potential. That that theory, that you know, that idealism is what 
uh, powers of entrepreneurs, uh, soldiers, uh, and what I believe great men and women and champions uh, to, to be better than everyone else. What is, uh, what is it that pushes you uh, through the adversities? Because um, from my own experience, I spent, uh, uh, I remember earlier on in my entrepreneurial career, there were many hardships. And if it were not for a sense of internal resolve of, oh boy, you know, I'm willing to die for this. So if I'm willing to die for this, a little bit of suffering now isn't that bad. <laughs> like, it's, you're just doing what you're meant to do. This is what the universe put you here to do. This is like uh, God's calling, so to speak. So you just, this is just what you're here to do. <laughs> uh, so I think it's being very humble with what the universe throws at you, but also having that resolve of saying, hey, I know what's important. Um, uh, uh, irrespective of the pivot, there's an underlying purpose of what we're moving towards. So all the pivots have to uh, help you move truer to that value, that philosophical goal of what, what you're trying to achieve with your life. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to spend your whole life running from one trend to another trend uh, uh, with no real center, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on, on the topic of the adversity, is there a particular adversity that you remember vividly as... Like this, maybe even like an inflection point or a very tough uh, yeah, climb that you hill that you climb. Uh, I remember um, after we had uh, shut down our, we guess we I ran out of funds to keep funding our uh, brain hardware project to democratize uh, spectroscopy devices. We we're trying to make these like quarter million dollar devices really cheap, uh, so that we could unlock innovation on the hardware basis but I put all my capital into that <laughs> and uh, eventually my volunteer team had to be disbanded just because we didn't have capital to keep going and uh, nor buy any of the uh, scanning or equipment um, that was a really hard point uh, earlier in my career I ended up spending a year homeless uh, living in my car uh, that was really shitty because um, yeah you know you get hassle you get worried about getting shanked <laughs> or robbed <laughs> So I remember I, I, I took a, I had to basically to keep surviving uh, and innovating. Uh, sort of like drove off into the mountain and just took my shotgun and just hunted. Just like kept the meat in like the river to keep it cold. <laughs> uh, and then there I did a lot of philosophy and thinking and planning my next step, my next move. And I said to myself, hell, here I am, I've literally got nothing. I've taken all of my wealth and like squandered it on, well not squandered, but like used it on projects that, that have not been successful. Am I going to give up now? Or am I going to keep going until I die? Uh, that, and I made the choice of the latter. And uh, what's great is I realized that uh, the secrets of the universe, uh, whatever industry you're in, they're really only revealed to those who are willing to give it their all willing to go head first, full in, um, uh, whatever industry you operate in, it requires a certain amount of intensity to be the best at it. Uh, so, so that's what, that, that's the frame of mind that helped me ac- overcome these <laughs> shitty parts of uh, an entrepreneur's journey. Uh, knowing that as a human, uh, if you've chosen your purpose here on earth, uh, then you should be happy to die for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like. It's. Uh, I think he, I'm just trying to imagine it. Imagine like the fact that you 
if you're just living in your car, you go into the woods and with a shotgun and you're just hunting for your own food. And then to get to where you are right now, right now, like across from me and you know, like you, you live with your two beautiful German shepherds and you know, now you have a home. The kind of and journey. property and property and property yeah and I also I was able to give property to my employee too who, you know to, to say oh boy if you join our company we care about you as an employee like we're, we're not employees we are fellow soldiers trying to uh, solve a big problem so not only was I able to well I, I don't really care about my own property but what I take pride in is being able to uh, bestow freehold land ownership of like like thousands tens of thousands of square feet to uh, to people who uh, believed in our mission, and uh, I'm just I'm just curious, like how how did that uh, huge just 180 shift happen where you didn't have property and now you have this beautiful property? Like did did was it at the result of creating Resound and Benji and like all these projects? Like how did this switch happen? Um, yeah, I guess it was a bit, really the birth of uh, a hybrid between the birth of Pangea. And the necessity to create uh, the tech campus because economically it's a lot cheaper to create a tech campus than to buy, rent a fancy office downtown over five years with the tech campus when go into perpetuity. <laughs> uh, so, I guess the land was a necessity to build our show homes and all that. And I'm thinking, well, one man doesn't need all that land, but my employee sure could use it. Um, so, so yeah, that's uh, so the show homes would essentially be. Uh, uh, well, I mean, there's. They serve their purpose to show what people will be buying, but uh, there's no reason why they should remain vacated, so to speak. Right. <laughs> so and it's just nice little vacation properties and a hunting cabin that people can go to. And so did you like after you know living in the woods? Did you come come out and do like a big fundraise to? Oh no, no. Get no. your like life back together? Oh or? no, no. We like I, I had to bootstrap it for a couple more years. Yeah. Yeah. Even until for maybe a couple more years until we got Angel around. So I worked at a barista. I just worked at a coffee shop and just did double time, I guess. Uh, after the, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, you work with what you got. Wow. Uh, but yeah, the, the worst, well, it's not bad, but I remember feeling very frustrated the first day I started my birds that work, same, because I said to myself, I never go back to uh, doing labor work again, having done it all my life as a kid. But um, I think you do what you need to, not what you want. <laughs> Yeah, and well, right now you you're do, you're living out this mission of yours, and as we kind of hit the uh, the final minutes of the interview, I wanted to kind of ask, uh, I guess, the kind of final questions I like to ask every guest, and like you've you've gone through this very unique journey, and it's just even in my own journey, it's just so hard to predict what you would actually end up doing. You think you're going to be doing X five years from now, and then five years from now happens, and you go, oh, well, that didn't pan out, and I'm being completely different. And so for you, if like if you could take it back to you know your 20-year-old self, like the 20-year-old Ben, just gonna fin- about to like finish up UBC, probably like his third year of university, if that Ben were to look at what you're doing right now, running all these companies, having gone through the life experience you've had sitting across from me in this office doing a podcast what do you think that Ben's emotional reaction would be? Well I think he'd be pretty disgusted because I don't really have billions of dollars yet um, I don't have 
I have not lifted millions of people out of poverty yet. Like, I'm really behind schedule. Like, I'm 29, but compared to where I've set myself up as a young man, I feel that I'm very much behind on schedule, which is why I've got such an aggression into executing our work. And, um, and as a young man, if I were to give any advice to a young man, um, I would very much uh, adopt the frame of mind that I took in that your, the most important thing that you can do as a young man is, is to grow your sense of integrity. Uh, understand what is important to you in this world. Uh, go and have fun. Uh, do good and bad things as, and make mistakes as a young man. Uh, learn, but more importantly, you got to figure out what it is you want to do as a man uh, or as a, as a woman, not as a child, you know. As a child, you you gotta figure out what it is. Once you figured it out, then uh, then uh, then you re- the re- you know it's like Nietzsche says: once uh, he who has any why can do uh, and persevere with any how. Um, so, my advice to any young person is learn to develop a character of integrity, and this means knowing what you value and and making sure that every single one of your actions uh, reflect that, because then your reputation will grow. Uh, uh, and that's really your most important asset as a young man, how, uh, what your reputation is above your financial credit. Or, uh, so what is your, uh, like, like what, what, what do you want to be as a young man or a young woman? I think that's a really important question to ask uh, any person. Yeah, and uh, I love that Nietzsche quote. And I think another quote that I, I personally uh, use a lot is, is Mark Twain's, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but I think he said, there are basically two points or two stages to any person's life, and the first is the the first stage is the moment you are born, and then the second is when when you understand or when you learn why you were born. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that's um, that self reflection, that introspection, whatever people call it, radical self inquiry is. I think it's a, it's a very big hallmark of the early parts of your journey and the amount of thrashing experimentation that you need to do early on to get an understanding of that is very crucial and it seems that you've kind of had your own very unique journey to figure that stuff out for yourself as well and so as we kind of wrap up this interview is there anything you want to leave our guests with that we might have not talked about or if there's nothing that's fine as well absolutely well i think the only last thing i want to say uh, the biggest hack into happiness that i found is that Everyone wants to be happy, and you're only really happy when you achieve what you value. So if you value a Coca-Cola, you get a Coca-Cola, you're happy. Now the trick is, if you value something greater than yourself, if you value something above and beyond your own life, you see beauties in this world that are worth much more than what you yourself are, because everyone values themselves. But if you find something greater than that, Every single day as you work towards that goal, you will enjoy unlimited, infinite happiness uh, that, that no one can ever take away from you. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and so I encourage anyone who's listening to this, you know, like quit your job, go traveling, uh, go experience. Uh, if you don't know what it is that you're fighting for, go figure it out. Otherwise, you're going to waste your life. <laughs> uh, that's all I got to say. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, sharing your story with me and my audience. I really appreciate it. Likewise, Dan. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be interviewed by you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow in some way contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.